millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Billboard.com's Chartbeat Podcast. I'm Gary Trust, Billboard's co-director of charts here in New York City. I also edit Billboard's Chartbeat blog, along with the entire Billboard charts department. And as you hopefully know, that's where we cover all news of what's on uh, Billboard's charts. And not only just the facts and figures, but the why of what makes hits happen as well. So that's the goal of this podcast uh, as well, to share insights about why what's on the charts is on the charts. So this is our second episode. If you missed the first one, you can find it on billboard.com. We started by chatting with Paul Grine, who started the Chartbeat column in Billboard 1981 and over a side through the end of 1992. So for our second episode this week, it only makes sense to pick up with the person who wrote Chartbeat after Paul and did that for more than 16 years. If you're a big music fan, you're also very familiar, I'm sure, with his work. Uh, this is going to take a while to, to run down, I think. Uh, he's uh, the author of the Billboard Book of Number One Hits, also Billboard's Biggest Hot 100 Hits, among other books. Uh, he's also worked with Dick Clark Productions for many years, American Idol, and still writes for Billboard, Billboard.com, our sister publication, Hollywood Reporter. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other stuff we will mention as well. But really excited to have as our second guest, uh, absolutely legendary music journalist, Fred Bronson. Fred, welcome. Thanks, Gary. Really happy to be here. I think uh, you and Paul, these first two episodes, this is going to rival the history of the Eagles, part one and two, as a famous <laughs> rock documentary. I hope so. Boy, that, that's what I was counting on when I showed up today. Yeah. Well, you, you, jokes aside, really are talking with uh, two people who have uh, been chronicling music for Billboard for decades now. So I, I really only say that uh, half jokingly because you think about all the hits that have happened uh, for for decades. You guys have been there, so uh, really honored to have you uh, as a guest, uh, Fred. Absolutely to uh, to get us started here. Let's, uh, well, thanks, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I want to get into so many aspects of your career, but uh, let's start uh, with Chartbeat when. Uh, I'm sure. sure a lot of people started reading your work in Billboard. January 9th, 1993, uh, the issue, you took over a chart beat. How did it happen? What are your memories? What uh, what do you think of when you think of uh, beginning that column back uh, more than uh, 23 years ago? Well, I remember it well. Uh, you know, before I did the column, I was you, you mentioned my first book, uh, the Billboard book 
of number one hits. That right. actually came first. Uh, I, well, long story short, I did have a job before all this, and I was a publicist at NBC in Burbank. I was there for 12 years. I quit and moved to London because I really wanted to live in London. And when I moved home, I thought, well, am I going to get a job as a publicist again, or am I going to do what I really want to do, which is write full-time? And I decided I was going to go for it. I was going to see if I could write full-time and support myself. I had no idea if that was going to work or not. Uh, within four weeks of, ma of coming home and making that decision, I had two phone calls. One was from a woman at Dick Clark wanting to know if I wanted to write radio shows uh, like three days a week because Dick did a couple of radio countdowns. Right. And the other call uh, was from a woman at Billboard Books. Uh, Billboard had its own book division, as you know, back then, Watson Guptill. And she said, uh, we're going to do a book on all of our number one hits. And I was given your name as a potential author. And I didn't have to think very long. I said, yes, I'd, I'd love to do that. So that was that was January of 84. And the books, you know, went through more than one edition. But along in, oh, toward the end of 1992, I got a phone call from Ken Schlager, who at the time was the managing editor of Billboard. And I, I had met most of the Billboard staff just in the course of doing, you know, the book work. So I knew Ken, and right. he, but I didn't know what he was going to ask me. <laughs> that was a surprise. He said, uh, Paul Grine has decided to move on, and we're looking for someone to take over the Chartbeat column, and we were wondering if you were interested. Once again, I did not <laughs> have to hesitate or think about it. I said, well, I'd love to, and that's how it all started. Uh I, if I hadn't written that book, I don't think it, you know, they would have thought of me. But that was the primary reason I got the call. I look back at your first column. It was uh, very timely, the way you wrote. Uh, very uh, thankful to all that Paul had written before you. You said you, said you felt like uh, Jay Leno taking over for Johnny Carson, which was a reference to, <laughs> we're, we're back in early 90s humor now, aren't we? Yeah, we are, but uh, hopefully some people will get that. It, it was true because I, you know, I was a Billboard reader since the age of fifteen, way before Chartbeat. But when Paul was writing Chartbeat, it was the first thing I turned to every week, and what I look forward the most, you know, to read of anything. Even before I'd look at the charts, I would look at Chartbeat, which you know, spoiler alert, sometimes. But uh, I love Paul's column. I. Never imagined he was going to stop writing it. You know, I think it was, what, a little over 11 years, I believe, he, yeah. he did Chartbeat. And so the call was a huge surprise to me. Uh, but to be honest, if they had to turn to somebody, I was really glad that they thought of me. And uh, just the way Paul had said and how we here in the charts department today still say how there's such a history that runs through all the charts, something that uh, Rihanna is doing this week. Maybe she and Drake uh, break a record that the Beatles held. Uh, they, it's all tied together so much. You noted in your first uh, column I was reading earlier how uh, Dolly Parton was in the Hot 100's top 10 the week that Paul 
started Chartbeat in 1981. And when you took over in 1993, uh, Dolly was in the top 10 as the writer of that week's number one song, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. So it really seems like at any point in time, there's always that thread of history going through the charts. Well, and I really learned to appreciate that because my my biggest concern when they asked me to take over, you know, a weekly column was what happens when we get to a week when there's nothing to write about. <laughs> and I Gary, you may have you may have experienced the same thing. I've never had a week where there was nothing to write about. Never. Well, I think it was. Uh, it's even more of a feat for you because we have so many more charts now. We've just uh, created <laughs> charts and charts and streaming charts and artist charts. But yeah, absolutely. Right. There, are, whether it's when something moves to number one, obviously that that kind of writes itself a little bit more than than something that's uh, continuing a long run. But as as a, an album or a song stays number one longer, you wind up oftentimes writing about where that puts a certain song in historical terms, you know, with, with Rihanna number one for a fifth week. Where where does that now stand uh, work among her other hits? So, yeah, that, that probably is a sure. fear that, that never that never really uh, should be feared because it, it, right, it, just, it never really happens. There's always so much going on. I, I finally figured, it took me a few years to figure it out it was, that it wasn't going to happen, <laughs> but... It it was definitely a concern at the beginning. Like, do I have to, you know, fake it one week? But I never, I never did. Uh, it was, and as you say, we have so many charts that, you know, if there wasn't something really interesting on the Hot 100, for sure there was something on another chart, you know. And people would ask me to explain, you know, my job, and I would say, I take this week's charts. And I put them in the context of the entire rock era. And we still do today because... Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ju- Justin Bieber uh, with the most Hot 100 hits in one week uh, beating Drake and the Beatles. And that's just... Right. It's always just so amazing when you think of it that way because nothing uh, puts something more in perspective uh, in terms of a chart achievement than when you can say this is the first time someone has done something since the Beatles. It, it, it always so much of what we write about comes back to the Beatles. Did, did you find that too when, when you were writing uh, Chart Beat Fred? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yes. Uh, and and then I always felt a little guilty comparing somebody else to the Beatles, but you know it happened. I mean, uh, it just did. You know, people getting you know the three songs in the top ten for the first time. Uh, since, you know, the Beatles or something like, you know, or in the top five. Uh, so there was always always a comparison to the Beatles. But uh, but for sure there was there was always something to write. And there still is today because I, I read you all the time. And you, you've, it seems like you've also never had a time where there wasn't something to write about. Yeah, there's uh, between the entire uh, charts department. There, we there's there's enough there's <laughs> enough work to, to to go around. So, and yeah, you know that that yeah. appetite is is there from fans. So so you you started Chartbeat in print, and then you were the person right. helming Chartbeat when it went online in I think 1996. How did uh, that transition go for you? Because suddenly you were talking more directly with fans. There were message boards. There were there was the comments section. How did did you like that? Because you could right. interact. How, how did that? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I feel for you. I, I did. I did. I mean, it was sure a lot easier to communicate with people via email than getting letters and having to, I mean, this really sounds like, you know, the old days. But uh, when I started, you know, people would mail me letters. So it would take sometimes a week or more to get to me. And then, you know, I would either answer in the column or or uh, write them a letter back, which would take another week or two to get to them. So by the time they heard from me, if, if they heard from me, because honestly, there were so many letters, I couldn't answer them all. And so if you're listening and you wrote me a letter back in the 90s and I didn't answer. I'm really, really sorry. You might but still, there, you might still be going through that mail. So there, it just yeah, might be, uh, you haven't gotten you to know, it yet. Yeah, I'm, but I am working my way through it <laughs> uh, any day now. Uh, so email made things a lot easier. And, you know, you, you do the Ask Billboard column. I did, I did you know, a similar thing where we, uh, online where we answered readers' emails and that just made it so much easier, especially once I learned to cut and paste. <laughs> the, uh, the the appetite for for chart uh, information it's it's pretty endless, isn't it? We, you know, we're, we're among the people who've written uh, this column for Billboard, but everyone's contributed around the world. Chart fans write in every week with just such insightful information. So I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. Paul said the same thing that just just kind of uh, leading uh, the whole parade of fans who are just so passionate about not just music but how music performs on Billboard charts. Absolutely. I, I always felt like I was never alone doing this, you know, and you bring up a good point because I don't know what age you got into the charts. I was like 14 when I really started paying attention first to my local radio. And within a couple of months, I discovered Billboard. So the, the Billboard charts, but I thought I was the only one. I was like this, and I wouldn't even tell people about how how much I liked the charts because it felt like, well, that's not something you discuss with other people. If if we had had the internet back then, of course, you know, I, I wouldn't have had those thoughts. It took me a long time to even find other chart fans back when I was a, a teenager, you know. But now, of course, once I started writing Chartbeat, I, I found a lot of chart fans and... <laughs> I mean, I knew by that time I wasn't the only one, but you know what I mean. I, yeah. I just like feel connected to everybody, and we do this, you know, as you say, with with everybody chiming in and giving us support, or coming up with ideas, or correcting us sometimes when we need it. Uh, but there's a whole community out there. 
and you know that's really what the the first uh, two episodes here of the Chartbeat podcast is about too. It's really just uh, for for the chart fans. People have read uh, Chartbeat for many years, uh, written by you, uh, Fred, and, and Paul before you. Just uh, kind of going through the history of Chartbeat and and all the ins and outs of Billboard charts, and you know what we're going to be doing on upcoming episodes. Just to uh, recap a little bit, is talk to people in the industry uh, who are the ones who help make the hits, not necessarily the artists, but whether it's record executives, uh, radio programmers, songwriters, uh, people who are, are the ones responsible for how songs get onto the charts. So we really kind of want to get into some of those insights. But uh, we're also going to talk to some Billboard people, other uh, staffers here, uh, people who used to work at Billboard, other people in, in music journalism, just because uh, it's it's kind of fun to, to look at that whole history and, and hear uh, about uh, different artists that have been covered over the years and how uh, prior hits have uh, happened. So uh, really, again, excited to have uh, Fred Bronson on with us uh, this week for the second Billboard Chartbeat podcast uh, with me, Gary Trust. We're talking about uh, Fred taking over Chartbeat in the early 90s. And uh, you really hit a, a, a golden era, Fred, of, of divas uh, leading the charts. That must have been, uh, from what I'm remembering, I, I know you wrote uh, so much about uh, Mariah, Whitney, Celine. That must have been a big bulk uh, every week when you looked at the charts in the 90s. You, you knew probably there was going to be something that one of those artists, Janet Jackson, uh, all, all those great uh, divas uh, had in the 90s. Well, you know, I, I was just thinking about that when you were talking about, you know, what's coming up and on the podcast in the future, yes, and the first name that popped into my head was Mariah, and what I was thinking uh, is, well, it's true, is that Mariah was a, probably still is, a big chart beat reader, and she loves the charts, she loves, you know, and she's very interested in her own, you know, chart career as well as everybody else's, but I've, I've, because of my other work on the American Music Awards and, and on Idol, you know, we've gotten to talk to her a number of times. And uh, she is very aware of Chartbeat and very aware of what we've written in the past about her and uh, follows us very closely. Maybe, Mariah, are you listening to the podcast today? I don't know. <laughs> Well, she named uh, the, the album uh, Number Ones. So that's a nice little reference to Billboard. So, so we, yes. we think that's cool. Let's get into the Billboard book of number one hits because there are a lot of interviews where artists talk about how excited they were to be on the charts and how yes. important it is to them. So that has to be a cool thing that you've noticed over the years, that the work you've done and all these hours and interviews you've put in, it, it means not so much to, to people reading it, but also to the artists creating uh, the art themselves. That That really takes it full circle. That has to be pretty rewarding, knowing that, Obviously, you're writing about their achievements, but on the other side, they're reading what you've written and, and think it's really neat uh, to hear about their own chart achievements. Uh, you're, you couldn't be more right. Uh, another, another artist, by the way, who I know reads Chartbeat and is very, very interested, uh, and I only heard this from her manager, not from her directly, but Barbara Streisand ah. was absolutely interested in reading about of course you know her own i i would feel the same way but but really enjoyed reading about the the charts uh so i'm not, you know who knows who else out there but but you're right i have a lot of the artists i've met over the years to interview when i first did the billboard book of number one hits of course nobody knew that the book existed but it went through four more editions and by the time 
I got to the fourth and fifth edition when I would call someone, either a writer or a producer or the artist to do an interview, they would say, I can't believe I'm going to be in the Billboard book of number one hits. <laughs> so they not only knew Chartbeat, they, by that time they knew the books as well, which was very nice that you could call someone and they were happy to do the interview because they were familiar with the books already. Whenever I read it, I'm just always amazed at the the time it must have taken to put in, to make this book. At the, the last edition here in the early 2000s, it was more than 800 at number ones. And, you know, a story takes a while to, to put together, to figure out the narrative and talk to different people. I just, every time, I can't imagine how much work went into doing this book. Well, you're right. People can't imagine because <laughs> think... Think of a term paper uh, multiplied by a thousand times or something like that. Uh, It was definitely, well, first of all, books are a lot of work. Uh, I just got a book in the mail this morning I cannot wait to read, and it's by one of our colleagues, Adam White, who was editor-in-chief of Billboard back in the 80s, but also was our international bureau chief in London, has written a book about Motown. It's one of the most beautiful books I've ever seen, but he took, you know, it took him three years to write, the, you know, to do the research, to do the interviews, to gather the photos, to write the text. But I will tell you, when a book comes out and you have it in your hands, all that work was worth it. All the years you put in. The the Billboard Book of Number One hits cum- cumulatively, probably I put about five years of work in you know, which is about a year for each edition. So I I didn't work on it solidly for five years, but if you add up all the time I've worked on it, that's that's how much time went into that book. So yeah, they're, they really take up your life for the time period that you're working on them, that's for sure. Were some artists really hard to track down? Maybe some artists who had number ones at the really early uh, part of the rock era or was uh, really you didn't have too a many few. challenges? Yes, there were some. Uh, Ironically for me, uh, when I was doing the first edition uh, and I was starting on the first quarter of the book to get that finished and turned in so I could keep writing, there was one artist I could not find. And you've you've interviewed her, and, and as I have many times now, but back then I couldn't locate her. And the irony for me is that she has my all-time favorite song and the song as you know is I Will Follow Him by Little Peggy March right? or Peggy March as she's known today uh, I knew that she had lived in Germany for many years I knew that she lived in uh, Florida for a while uh, her family was from Pennsylvania I couldn't track her down and finally I found a song she had written for Audrey Landers. Do you remember the actress, Audrey Landers? Yeah. She was in Dallas and a, right. a, a lot of others. Yeah. Well, Audrey recorded a song written by Peggy and produced by a man named Jack White. I was able to find Jack White. And through Jack, I was able to find Peggy March, who it turned out lived about 30 minutes away from me in <laughs> Calabasas, California. So I drove out to her house and interviewed her for the book, which of course I really needed, but you can imagine how I felt interviewing the artist who recorded my favorite song of all time. And well, we became really good friends and that was 32 years ago and we're still 
great friends today. Going back to a very young, early Fred Bronson, were you a music fan right from the start, from as early as you can remember? And, and also, when did your writing, uh, your love of writing, Fred, uh, start to develop? Well, to be honest, I knew at five I wanted to write. Ah. I, I couldn't paint, I couldn't sing, I couldn't dance, I wasn't good at sports. <laughs> but I could write. I knew that somehow. I, I don't even know, honestly, how I knew that at five. And I remember, like, in school, sitting down to try to write a play. I don't think I ever actually wrote it, but I knew I was trying to. And I started writing short stories. So the writing element was always there. I did have an earlier passion, though, before music, that I thought was going to be my career. And at the age of six, I read my first Superman comic book. And I got very heavily into DC Comics and eventually Marvel. And I thought my career was going to be writing for DC. I actually did write a lot of letters to the editor, and they all got, well, they didn't all. A lot of them got published. Uh, so you'll see my, if, if you read comic books, you know, go back and look at issues. Well, Spider-Man number three, for example, I have a letter, in, it was the first Spider-Man letter column. I think I'm in Fantastic Four number nine, but I was in Flash and Justice League and the Metropolis mailbag all the time. And then I discovered music <laughs> when I was 14, and that was the end of comic books. I don't know what happened. I, I mean, I'm still, you know, I watch Supergirl, Flash, and Arrow and all that and go to the movies, but I got diverted into music, and that was, that was the end of my comic book career. That's what uh, Paul uh, Grind said last week, too, that he was about maybe 16 when he got into music. I was I was 14, same age as you. And we were saying how that's uh, that's the age when you really start to feel things maybe more passionately uh, than ever before. And, and music can make that kind of imprint. And you remember what kind of uh, what passion you felt for it at that age. And and you take that with you. So I, I think that's becoming consensus here that that's that's a time when a lot of people uh, get so much into music and, and carry that with them through their lives well I tell people uh, ask me about that and I tell them the music you're going to like best your entire life is the music that was popular when you were 14 right and it's true for me and it, is it true for you yeah I, I, I mean I still love yeah. new stuff but there is a lot of yeah 1988 yeah. 89 music in my iPod still absolutely Sure. Yeah, I, I've, I won't even tell you the year when I was fourteen, but you could guess. <laughs> so it was a long time ago, we, 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 and I we got all of that music. But I got today's music too. Yeah, I was going to say, what uh, music do you like uh, now, Fred? I know you like some of that early uh, Motown stuff and Little Peggy March. That's a big part from right, from reading your work right. and, and knowing you. But uh, what artists are you a fan of uh, since then and, and through to, to to today? Well, up through the years, I mean, my favorite album of all time is Tapestry. And I actually interviewed Carol King for my college newspaper before Tapestry came out because she had an album called Writer. And I was so taken with that, I called to see if I could get an interview with her. And I was invited over to A&M Studios where she was making a new album. We talked about the new album. We talked about her career. And then the album came out and it was called Tapestry. <laughs> So I felt like I sort of, you know, got on the Carol King bandwagon just before everybody else did. Right. But I o over the years, uh well, you know, I love pop music and as you know, we're back in 
the day, you know, a, a great time for pop music once again. I mean, there were years where a pop song could not go to number one, but those days are over. So I'm a huge Katy Perry fan. I'm a I'm a Madonna fan, even, you know, though our own Keith Caulfield is Madonna fan number one, but <laughs> I love her too. Uh, so there, there's so much. I mean, uh, you know, boy bands. Uh, I love music from all over the world. So I listen to a lot of songs from Europe or Asia that never get released in America. And I like it so much, and there's so many good songs. I started to tweet a link every day to a pop music video from somewhere else in the world. I'm on day 19 today. Uh, I call it Pop Goes the World, and I'm just doing it for fun. I mean, it's music I've discovered that I think people who love pop music in America would love if they could only hear it. So uh, if anybody wants to follow me at Fred Bronson on Twitter, they'll see the links one every day to a great song from somewhere else in the world. It seems like from from that uh, type of tweeting to just everything you've written and the Billboard book of number one hits and Chartbeat, it seems like you just you get a big thrill out of sharing musical knowledge with people and just and just making people as aware as possible as to all the the ins and outs of of what goes on with with artists and the charts. Is that kind of what it comes down to for you, Fred? Just uh, kind of be, being being the, the the leader of of a whole discussion about all things music. Well, that is totally what I love to do is share music and you know, I'm I'm after I do this podcast today, I've got a meeting over at American Idol to play songs for them that I think would be great for the finalists to record, you know, for their albums that they're gonna do after Idol. And they're all songs, you know, from Sweden and Germany and Japan and all over the world that people don't ever get a chance to hear. And I love the fact that I can go share these with people. Uh, sometimes I've actually, well, way back in season two of Idol, uh, there was a contestant named Carmen Rasmussen. And I heard this song in Sweden I thought would be perfect for her. And when the season ended, I finally told her, I said, Carmen, I've got this great song. I think it, you know you would sound great on it. And I got her, well, I, I played the song for her. She loved it. I put her in touch with the publisher, and she recorded it. I love doing things like that, you know? How did uh, your love for Idol start? Because you've become pretty much the, the preeminent writer of all things Idol. Did did you know back in 2002 that it was the show was going to have this kind of a legacy? And, and what are your earliest memories of, of how Idol started and, and how, how you became such a fan? Well, thanks. That's a, actually a great question. Uh, I did watch season one, but did I have any idea of the legacy or how long it would last? Absolutely not. But I liked it. You know, I thought it was a good show. I didn't have any connection or contact with them until I actually, uh, this is Chartbeat related. I got a letter one day from uh, a Chartbeat fan asking about the theme song for Idol, which, as you know, was written by Kathy Dennis. And I, to get a little more in-depth answer, I called the American Idol production office and talked to their music supervisor. And she said, listen, while I have you on the phone, uh, one of our contestants wants to sing 
A House Is Not A Home, the Burt Bacharach song. Yeah. But she's never heard the Dionne Warwick version. Do you have a copy of that? <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I do. She said, well, could we, could we borrow that? We'd love to play it for her. I said, yeah, I should hold on. I'll be right back. And she was gone about 10 minutes, but I held on. She came back and said, oh, we, we just sent a runner to a record store. This is how long ago it was. There were record stores <laughs> uh, to get a copy, but we really appreciate it. She only knows the Luther Vandross version. And so, by the way, it was Tamira Gray. She did a killer job on A House Is Not A Home, which happens to be, we just, as I'm sure you saw in Billboard.com, we ran the top 100 idol performances of all time. Right. And that was in the top 10. But that was my first sort of even, you know, remote contact with idol. I, nothing in person, just over the phone. And that was the end of it. But season two, the TV Academy, which I'm a member of, had an afternoon with American Idol, which is like in their theater with all the producers and, and Ryan and the judges and the top 12, which included Ruben and Clay and Kimberly Locke. I went to that, and that's where I met Nigel Lithgow for the first time, the executive producer. And within 30 seconds of meeting him, I said, you know, Nigel, I've got an idea. He laughed. He said, what's your idea? I said, why don't you do a show where the editors of Billboard pick the songs for the contestants? And he looked at me with a big smile and said, absolutely not. <laughs> He said, we, we do not pick the songs. And he said, we learned that lesson in the UK with Pop Idol. Uh, if we pick the song, the person who goes home, they're going to blame you. Right. So we don't pick the song. We might suggest, but they have to pick their own songs. So I said, oh, all right. Well, the event began. It lasted a couple hours. And when it was over, everybody was hanging around the TV Academy just talking, and I saw Nigel. Well, my mind had been racing the whole time. If that doesn't work, what what else would work? And I thought, my book, <laughs> the Billboard Book of Number One Hits. Now, it sounds like a cliche now, but they had never done anything related to Billboard at that, you know, at that time. So I went up to Nigel. I said, Nigel, I've got another idea. He laughed a little louder that time. And he said, what? <laughs> I said, uh, here's a theme, Billboard number one hits. And he said, yeah, that'll work. He said, I tell you what, I promise you we're going to do it, but we are totally booked this year already. But for season three, we'll do that. Two weeks later, I got a phone call. You might want to come over to Idol. We're doing Billboard number one hits. Something fell through and they they remembered my idea. And I said, well, you know, I've got another idea more laughter. I said, why don't you bring the kids over to the billboard office and I'll explain how the charts work and that could be a segment on the air. And they said, yeah, that's great. We'll do it. So they marched the kids over to billboard one morning. Uh, there is an irony to this. The date they came over was April 4th of 2003. And they had a chance to ask me questions and Clay Aiken asked, was there ever a week, you know, who, who actually he said, who had the most records in the top 10 at the same time? <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me, April, today is April 4th. I said, right. well, it was April 4th of 1964 
and it was the Beatles with the top five. But the coincidence that it was the same day was just, that's the way the charts work, right? Yeah. There's, as we said, it always comes <laughs> back to the Beatles, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> and you've really, and, yeah, I was going to say, you've, you've been a, a and this, so that got you on the show and, and you continue to be a, a, a part of the Idol family, right? Uh, through, through today. Yeah. They, they put me on the show three more times over the years, and uh, I've covered it for, for Billboard and The Hollywood Reporter uh, over the years. Uh, currently, you know, very much for Billboard, although there, there's some Hollywood Reporter work this season as well. And uh, I feel like just by hanging around, I've sort of become the historian of American Idol. I literally know every final, you know, I've interviewed every finalist, from season two on and, and somehow got to meet all the season one finalists at one point or another. Uh, I don't know anybody else who's interviewed every, every finalist for 15 years uh, outside of people who work on the show. So, and they, they treat me very much like family when I go over there, you know, the access is total and uh, I feel like I've got my beat, but my beats going away. <laughs> Not a bad run, though. It had a pretty good run, I'd say. Yeah, for any TV show, you cannot argue with 15 years. That's, you know, and, you know, I will make the prediction right now. Idol will be back within two years. May not be on Fox. In fact, it won't be on Fox, but it will be back in some form. Yeah, the reason why it would come back and just why it's been so successful for for so long, Fred. Why do you think? What has been the appeal for Idol? Is it part uh, we sort of find contestants and we see a little of ourselves in them and want to root for them? Is it is it just we like to hear people singing? We like music that much. I think it's all of it. It's definitely the we get to know the contestants because that's how Idol is designed. You know, like I always say, you. Most people could not name anyone from The Voice. And I watch The Voice and I like it. But how many how many voice contestants? You're in the business. You can probably name some. I can. But most people can't. But they can tell you who came in 10th on Idol, you know, 12 years ago. So people remember the Idols. I think it's just the way the show is built. So you you root for them. You feel like you know them. You vote for them, so you're invested in their success and their careers, and and the show has come through. I mean, you know, there's a number of superstars: Kelly, Carrie, Daughtry, Adam, uh, uh, Jennifer Hudson, and more. And then uh, Fantasia, Ruben. There's a lot of people who work all the time because they were on Idol, and and you you know, if I said the names, you would you would know them. Uh, so. It's it's the creation of superstars. It's the we are personally invested in them, uh, and we love music. So I think it's all of that. And a really nice bookend of, of chart uh, feats for Idol and, and how important the show still is and how it can still create chart hits. You know, Kelly Clarkson had the very first Idol number one with a moment like this back in, uh, at the end of season one. And then this season, in the closing season, Kelly is right back in the top ten uh, after performing a piece, uh, piece by piece. And, and that song had 
been a single, didn't really do much. It had a small run at radio, right. and then she does this emotional right. performance on Idol. And as much as people say, well, uh, ratings of Idol aren't what they used to be, what a nice sign that it still can strike a chord with people when she just puts her heart out there and, and does a performance like she did. That's that's true. That was one of the most amazing performances I have ever seen on television, Idol and beyond. I mean, I, I just, you know, there's a reason it went viral and, and it had millions of hits. Uh, and although it didn't, as you know, didn't go number one in the Hot 100, but a couple other charts, right? Uh, digital songs and pop Correct. digital songs went, Correct. went to number one. So that's a perfect bookend. Uh, the fact that Kelly is still relevant, you know, 15 years uh, is, you know, how many artists are relevant after 15 years? It's amazing. Uh, and Carrie Underwood on the country charts and, of course, you know, makes the Hot 100 as well and our album chart. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a phenomenon. And I really, I feel very lucky to have been any kind of part of it at all. And the other question I wanted to ask you, Fred, because I know you were a guest judge at one point on a, a similar type of competition. It was CMT's Next Superstar. And was it different for you to step into the judge's role? It's one thing to watch and be a fan of all the performances. It must be a little tougher when you're the person who has to be honest and, and maybe critical if, if someone maybe didn't do the best performance. Well, it was different. I always wondered how, what kind of a judge I would make, and I got the opportunity to find out. Uh, it was Matt Serletic and Kristen Chenoweth and me. We were the judges on episode one. Uh, Matt did the whole series, but they brought in a, you know guest judges all the other you know every week. Right. And honestly, I think I did pretty good. <laughs> I, think. Uh, I, you know, I always secretly thought they should have a journalist on Idol as a judge. But once once they put Ellen on, I realized it was only going to be celebrity names from that moment on. And that's yeah. true. You know, Mariah and Nikki and J-Lo and Keith and Harry. And I think the judging team they have is great. But I always, I always felt, hmm, I think I could do it. And then I had the chance and uh, I... You know, I'm a modest guy, but I have to say, yeah, it turned out okay. <laughs> Were you afraid to be critical? Did you feel bad? Or, or or was everyone good and you didn't even have to worry about that? I I wasn't afraid, but they were pretty good. It was a top it was the first episode, so there were ten contestants performing and I, you know, all three of us critiqued every one of them. There wasn't anyone who was terrible. There were people who were maybe less good than the others. But I think uh, I was more of a Harry Connick type judge, not not in terms of the music, you know, knowing, you know, every everything technical about music, but in terms of being critical without being a jerk. Right. That's a that's a good way. That that, that, that's a good legacy. <laughs> critical but not a jerk. That's that, that's a nice way to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I actually just wrote that up for the the next issue of Billboard has uh, a section on American Idol and we did a bunch of how tos and we did how to how to be critical without being a jerk <laughs> and and the interview person we interviewed was Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's great, uh, Fred. We could talk about so much more. And, and you know, I'd love to have you back on the podcast here. We'll talk about other uh, memories you have about writing about different artists, different eras, and uh, and whatever is, is coming next. So you're, you're always welcome uh, back here on the Charpy podcast. But what, uh, what else is up next for you, Fred? Is it uh, already writing for Dick Clark New Year's Eve, which I, I know you don't start uh, doing that uh, on December 30th or, or, or the 31st. So right. what's, what, right. well, what, what, what are you working on? That would be more in the fall, right? But we definitely start, you know, a couple months out uh, ahead of time. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I've actually uh, I'm working with uh, Simon Lithgow, who is the son of Nigel Lithgow. Uh, Simon has his own production company uh, on creating some TV series, and we have one that, although I can't talk about it yet, it's something you're going to love. It's definitely music related. And a lot of the people who would be on this show would be people you've written about. And it's for PBS. And the good news so far is that PBS said they want it. We're now in the phase where we're looking for our corporate sponsors. So anyone listening to this podcast who has a few million dollars and would like to be one of our corporate sponsors, love to hear from you. And I'm kidding. That's not an actual call to action, but I'm not kidding about the show. Well, you, you, you wondered earlier if Mariah Carey's listening. So she, she might have a, a few extra bucks laying around. Ah, well, I'll check. She's definitely one, someone we'd like to have on the show. That That's for sure. And if I told you what the show was, you done. It's not, it's not what you think. But uh, it would be perfect for her as well as a lot of other people that we've written about. Well, that's great, Fred. When you when you are ready to to announce more, I'd love to have you back here on the podcast. We'll talk more about it, and really, anytime you ever want to come on, uh, you're you're welcome to. And it's really excited to uh, find out about uh, how you continued Chartbeat in the '90s into the 2000s, and and your whole uh, really legendary career. So, I really want to thank you, Fred, for taking some time today to be with us here on the Billboard Chartbeat Podcast. I really appreciate it, Gary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.